you take your copy of the scriptures this morning, let's go over to Revelation chapter 19 to one of the most joyous parts of the book of the Revelation. I know that at times it has been very dark as we have worked through, especially Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 about the judgment of Babylon. But here we come today to one of those glorious events that we see. And so if you would take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 19, we'll begin reading with verse 5 and go down through verse 10. Revelation 19 and verse 5. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the, the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See you, do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Shall we pray together? Father, be magnified, I pray today, in the proclamation of your word. We ask, dear Heavenly Father, that you would move this messenger out of the way. Many of us this morning are wrestling with sickness. We're asking, dear Heavenly Father, that you would enable, enable this preacher to be instant in season and out of season. Enable all of us to be able to concentrate and think upon your words, Father, and how important they are to all of us. And I ask, Father, that as we rejoice today around this passage, that it would have a magnetic effect upon all of us, drawing us closer to our Lord and closer to the events that are described in Revelation chapter 19. Be glorified, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You are undoubtedly aware that those who are in the highest social circles, socialites, often speak of the event of the season, that it's the place to be if there is something important, either a wedding or some sort of a gala or a reception of some kind. It is said in those circles that this is the event of the season. This is the place to be. And those who long to be at those meetings often are spoken of as longing to hobnob with the bigwigs. They would love to have their picture taken with some auspicious person. But imagine your excitement, if you will, that if you personally were to receive an invitation to attend such an event. What if you personally received one in the mail? What kind of questions would come to your mind? Well, what am I going to wear? What's the appropriate attire for this? How, how do we prepare for such an auspicious event? But what if it were more than that? 
What if it were more than just the event of the season? What if you took it up a notch and said, what if it were the event of the century? <laughs> it has historic implications for you to be there, perhaps some political or economic confab where everyone, all the best people say of the earth are there and, and you personally are invited. Or what if you took it up one more and said, not only the event of the century, what if it was the events of all the centuries? Dear friends, I would say to you, that's what we really have in Revelation chapter 19. When you begin to work through this, that these are the most important events for all the centuries. And this passage tells us a great deal about those who will be in attendance. But more than merely the people who are participating, this passage really tells us where to direct our attention. When we speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb, do we direct our attention to the marriage or the supper or the Lamb? And the answer is, of course, in this passage, that it is to the Lord God omnipotent who reigns and his Lamb. As John the Baptist said about the Lamb, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. We're going to see as we work through this passage today that the Lamb of God is at the very center of it all. He is the one who deserves the praise. And so in this passage, we're going to learn more about how to love and honor or love and worship our Lord and His Lamb and actually to go on and do more, to live for him and testify for him because of what we find here. As we talked about in the last message, you can see it there in verse 5, a voice came out of the throne. This is very likely the voice of God himself saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. Whether this is the voice of the Lord or the voice of a great angel or even the voice of those redeemed saints, still the message is true and it's right. And right at the center of it is this, praise our God, all you his servants. The word alleluia or hallelujah, as we talked about in the last message, because this passage has a chorus of hallelujahs. Every one of those refers to the fact that it's a, it's a call, it's a command, in this case, in verse 5, to praise our God. He alone deserves all the praise and all the glory. And that's never more apparent than when you get to the last verse in our text today, where John attempts to worship an angel and is immediately reproved for doing so. No, all of the praise and honor and glory belongs to our Lord, to the Lord God, and to no one else. All of his servants here, as you can see, refers to the fact that these are those who fear God. They love him. They respect him. They honor him. And he says, servants, both small and great, that is, from the most obscure servant of God that perhaps no one even knows much about to the most well-known servant of God whose name is in all the papers and his, his fame is publicized everywhere. Really the answer for both is, and the command for both is, praise our God. So today if we come to this place and we are singing and we are magnifying the Lord from our hearts, we are joining the chorus where we praise our God and desire to honor him. 
Notice, if you will, in verses 6 and 7, when it says, I heard a great voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters. We talked about this in the last message, like like Niagara Falls, uh, except during the recent freeze when it froze up, the, the sound, the roar of Niagara Falls, or perhaps the Atlantic Ocean, or the Pacific Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, some great body of water. Just think about those waves, like the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What an important reminder when you read the news in these days and you wonder what is up now. Each new day seems to bring us closer to a senselessness of what on earth is going on with our leaders and what on earth is going on with the struggles in our nation. Here's what we need to remember. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He is completely and totally in charge. And so what does it say there in verse 7? Let us be glad and rejoice. Question for you today, is that what this passage leads you to do? Would you say today, this passage leads me to be glad and rejoice All of these who are speaking, all of these who are crying out, the voice of the multitude, what they're doing is every one of them is speaking to our heart through the word of God. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he is speaking directly to our souls today, to our inner being and saying, let us rejoice and be glad. Specifically, why today? Well, notice what he says. And give honor to him, again, the focus is on the lamb, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. As we studied in this last message, this chorus of hallelujahs is ringing out through this passage. And here, especially, it's about the marriage supper of the lamb that we are to say hallelujah. What does it mean when it says the marriage of the lamb, and it speaks of the wife of the lamb. Well, according to what you find in the New Testament, the bride of Christ is the church. That is, every truly born-again person, every truly regenerated person is a member of the church. And here what you have is the ultimate. Now, as Paige Patterson has pointed out, and I put it there in your notes, and if you're watching online, you can see the notes there. Patterson has pointed out that this very likely is very near the end of the tribulation. And one of the reasons would be that all those who will be saved, all those who will be manifest and magnified as believers will be there in this place. And so it is a fascinating spectacle, if you will, to think about the redeemed of the ages being there. And How are they there? Well, as Patterson pointed out, the lamb has purchased the bride through his atoning death on the cross. Only at the end of the church age will all who are to be added to the bride actually be present there. And so this multitude is encouraging us, let us rejoice and be glad. Stop the message for a moment to ask this question. Are you rejoicing and being glad over this? Today, if you know that you are a member of the bride of Christ, that you are part of the New Testament church, are you today rejoicing and being glad? It is a source of real joy. John writes to us in 1 John, these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Jesus said, I have come to give them life and life more abundantly. You see the overflowing joy in a passage like that. 
What's really interesting is that when you look at this in the context, and you look at it in the context of a number of New Testament passages, the things that come out are, look, look at what it says here when it says, his wife has made herself ready. Okay, question today. If you are a member of the church, a, a regenerated, born-again member of the body of Christ, are you making yourself ready? Are, are you eagerly anticipating this event? Now, anytime there is a wedding, uh, fathers of brides know that there's this eager anticipation. There's a great deal of work to be done. There are so many things that have to be taken care of. Why? Because everyone is looking forward to the big day. Everybody is all excited about the big day. And what happens especially with the bride? Well, she makes herself ready. She gets everything in readiness. No detail is unexamined. Everything has to be exactly right for the big day. In the very same way, the scripture is telling us that the New Testament church prepares itself for the marriage of the Lamb. This comes out in passages such as 1 John chapter 3 where it says, He that has this hope purifies himself. You get the idea there. He, he purifies himself in the, in the sense of 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The idea of purifying herself, that's what the bride of Christ does. I ask you today as an application for this message, is that what you are doing? Do you live for this world and all that it seems to offer, or are you living for that marriage supper of the Lamb? Is that where your focus is today? These banquets and feasts are a regular feature of what you find in Old Testament prophecy. I listed for you there in your notes, for instance, Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9 speaks of this. And One of the more interesting ones for our purposes today is over in Isaiah 65, verses 13 and 14. And the reason that one is so interesting is because it specifically anticipates that the righteous servants of God will enjoy a magnificent feast. It is not clear at all that it's speaking there of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, there seem to be a number of these kind of feasts all through the millennium and perhaps even on into eternity. But the point that the Old Testament prophets made was that God's righteous servants will sit down and feast and and take joy in his presence and the fellowship that will be all around the table. Undoubtedly, there are those of you here who, whether it's in your family or in the church setting or some banquet, you have rejoiced over just such a banquet. But this point you have to see, that in Isaiah 65, it specifically excludes the wicked. It makes much of the fact that God's righteous servants will be there, but it excludes the wicked. Now, Jesus picked up on this in Matthew chapter 8. It's a really amazing passage where a Roman centurion, that means he's a Gentile, a Roman centurion of all people demonstrates to the Lord that he has great faith. And the Lord says, I haven't seen such great faith. No, not in Israel. This is, this is tremendous faith. 
But then Jesus went on to really drive the point home. This is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. When he was marveling over the faith of the Gentile centurion, Jesus said, Verily, or truly, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see how Jesus is basically driving this point home about those who will be excluded from, they will be excluded from a banquet of righteous servants. Now, dear friends, as we talk then about the marriage supper of the Lamb today, and we anticipate what is coming in the rest of Revelation, that's a part, that's a point there that we ought to really stop and park our minds on just for a moment. Are you sure that you are a member of the bride of Christ? Can you say with confidence today, I know, I know my Lord, and I am getting myself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Or is it for you something that's sort of a casual toss-off of, I just don't know that it's all that important. Dear friend, look, time spent finding out on this is time well spent. You and I have to ask ourselves, we have to examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. Why? Because the great danger here is that the wicked will be excluded from these feasts, including the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Jesus said, some who long to be there with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this reminds us of the danger of being excluded from these banquets. And you ask the question today, well, why would any pastor who preaches the word of God, why would we preach like this? And the answer is, we want to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, warning every man, the apostle Paul wrote, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. When I think about this uh, idea of being invited to the banquet, I immediately think of a man from our congregation that many of you know, and you could call his name, who actually was at Pearl Harbor, and he was aboard ship when Pearl Harbor was bombed, December 7th of 1941. And many of you have heard his story. Years ago, when I was talking to him, and I asked hey, how did you come to know the Lord? He told me his whole story. He told me how he had come to know the Lord. But I've never forgotten the way he concluded that. He looked me right in the eye and he said, I've got my ticket. I had never heard it said that way to me before. I've got my ticket. What he was saying was, I know that I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have that confidence in him, and I've got my ticket. So the question for all of us today would be this. Do you have your ticket? Can you say with such confidence as this dear brother said, I know whom I believed. I know that I have my ticket. That's the kind of confidence we can have, I believe, as we look at the Word of God. Because 1 John 5.13 says, These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. It, it's not a question of maybe finding out when you get there. That you may know, that you can have the confidence you have eternal life. In the same sense, this man said, I have my ticket. 
do you, can you say today, I've got my ticket. I know that I am invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verses 8 and 9, it tells us a little bit more about one of these events, as I say, of the centuries. I think there's more than one here in Revelation 19. The second coming of Christ would certainly be the premier event. But the marriage supper of the Lamb, look at it, if you will, in verses 8 and 9. And notice what it says here. Now, we've been looking at this and understanding how the Lord is at work. And we saw in verses 6 and 7 that the marriage of the Lamb leads us to joyfully honor the reign of the Almighty God. The Lord God omnipotent reigns, and in his perfect timing, he is bringing about the marriage supper of the Lamb. What happens in verses 8 and 9? And to her was granted that she should be arrayed, that is, clothed in fine linen, clean and white. The next time you go to a wedding and you see the bride dressed in white, remember that that's actually a reflection of this passage, dressed in fine linen, clean and white. Now catch this. How do you apply this? For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Wow. The fine linen, the picture here of being clothed in this white linen, clean and white, represents the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Now let's go slow on this and look at verse 8 and notice the words, first of all, to her was granted. To her was given. To the bride of Christ, something is given. Is this something that the bride earns? No, it's something that is given to her. Do you see how that immediately puts the focus on the Lamb, the Lord God, and not on the person, not on not on the member of the body of Christ? To her was granted that she should be clothed in fine linen, clean and white, And this fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, let that kind of sink in for a moment. How is this possible, friends? How is it possible that sinners such as we are, Romans 3, what does it tell us? There is not one who is righteous, no, not one. We know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that every man, every woman, every child is a sinner. We're we're all rebellious sinners How is it even possible that we could be clothed in the righteousness that he describes here, the righteousness of saints? How is that even possible that it could be true? Well, the answer is it is all because of the Lord. It is all because of his righteousness. The righteousness in which we are clothed is actually the perfect spotless record that Jesus Christ achieved while he was here upon the earth. His robes that we often speak of. It's his robes that we are talking about. It's his righteousness. That's why it says he was grant, she was granted that righteousness. She was given that righteousness. When the Apostle Paul was explaining this over in Romans 3, We often quote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's what the very next verses say. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. How does any person become a member of the bride of Christ? How is that possible? It's through faith in his blood. It's through through faith in what Jesus Christ did. 
He goes on to say, to declare his righteousness for the remission or the forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance, the patience of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. I've given you this illustration many times before, but think about what it means when it says he is both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Question, how can he be both? How can God be just, which means that he does not overlook our sin, and yet be the justifier, the one who declares us to be righteous in his sight? Those two seem to be contradictory, do they not? Years ago in Tarboro, North Carolina, as I was witnessing to a man who said he was a devotee of Islam, I asked him this question. You say that Allah is just. Does he give you exactly what you deserve? He said, oh, yes. I said, well, then does Allah forgive you? He said, oh, yes. I said, there's where I lose it every time. How can he give you exactly what you deserve and yet forgive you, which almost by definition is not giving you what you deserve? How does that work? And he looked at me and he said, what do you believe? And so I told him about the work of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ had done for all of us. How is it that we can proclaim this wonderful forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ? Well, it is that the Lord might be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. It's all about what he has done. There's a very real sense in which our faithful Lord has has woven this fine linen of righteousness in which we are clothed. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about his majestic work. And that's why when you see in verse 9, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, they are called. They are called. They are invited. They're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Lest anyone should doubt, lest anyone should say, well, is that exactly right? The angel says, these are the true sayings of God. Truth is that which conforms to reality. He is saying, these are the true sayings of God. We, we know this. We are certain of this. And so what does he say? He says, right, blessed Right, blessed are those which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you today know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a member of the church, a member of the bride of Christ. You know what the Lord says about you? You're blessed. You are amazingly blessed by his grace. You are blessed in having such a calling. God called you to himself. Remember that Jesus Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will call men to myself. But he also told us in John 6, no man can come except my father, which is in heaven, draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. We don't understand the mysteries of God's calling, but here's what we do know. We do know that when the gospel is being preached as it is being preached right now, we know that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, The word is nigh thee. The word is near you, even in your heart. The word which we preach, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what the scripture tells us. That calling goes out every single time the gospel goes out. People are called to come to the Lord. 
And those who ultimately respond by God's grace are members of the bride of Christ. So this matter of the calling and how it works is something that we would just have to say, glory to God, I barely even understand it, but I know that we see it throughout the scripture. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, when it talks about the predestined blessings of God, when it talks about the fact that we are accepted in the beloved, that is accepted in Jesus Christ, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ, It just causes us to wonder and to do exactly what it tells us to do in verse 5, which is praise our God. He deserves all the praise and honor and glory. Predestined blessings we enjoy according to his will. Adopted sons because his work, his promises fulfilled. We stand before him now in love as, as holy without blame accepted in God's own beloved forever in his name. A question, how does that happen? And what you find in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 is, we've heard the gospel word of truth, believing by his grace in his own precious promises for our accursed race. The promised spirit seals us now for greater blessing still. God gives us an inheritance The living Father's will. Folks, it's all about him. It is not about us. You know from the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, for by grace, his grace, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one will be boasting in heaven. No part of the bride of Christ will be boasting about her finery and her clothing. No, it's all going to be about the lamb. All eyes are going to be on the Lamb and the Lord God omnipotent, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in this passage, in Revelation 19, verses 5 through 10, we really do learn to love and honor our Lord and his Lamb and really ultimately live to testify for him. Now in uh, verse 10, you have one of the strangest parts of the book of the Revelation. And this ought to give every one of us pause. Here is the Apostle John. He's the beloved Apostle. And the Apostle John is so overawed by the glories of God that he makes a really serious mistake. And he testifies about this. Even as he writes this, he said, I made a a really serious mistake here. What is this serious mistake that he makes? Well, look what he says in verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the angel. He's speaking of the messenger. You can see it as you read on. I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See that you do it not. I am your fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isn't that astounding? How is that even possible? Well, the fact that it is possible ought to cause every one of us to stop and think carefully about what we're really seeing here. That when you see these amazing revelations of the glory of God, awesome as they are, it would still be possible for you and me to worship someone other than God. And that's the great danger. That is idolatry to worship someone else other than God. Remember that if you took the highest archangel in heaven and compared him with an earthworm, 
then you and I might say, well, look, look at the excellencies of the highest archangel in heaven as compared to this earthworm. But then you add to that equation the most high God. And you think about the Lord God of all, God Almighty, put him into that equation and then ask this question, which one is that highest archangel in heaven? Which one is he more like? Is he more like the Lord God omnipotent who reigns or is he more like the lowly earthworm? And the answer, of course, is as a created being, that angel has far more in common with that lowly earthworm than he does with the one about whom we say, hallowed be thy name. Lord, you are separate. He is the creator. Everything else is the creation. He is Lord God alone. He alone deserves all of our worship and all of our praise. And so what does that angel say to John? He says to John, stop, stop what you're doing right now. What you're doing is absolutely wrong. It's out of character. And he went on to tell him, he said, look, do not do that. Number two, I'm your fellow servant. Number three, I am like your brethren who testify of Jesus. And then what does he do? He redirects the praise to the Lord to worship the Lord God. That's a good reminder for all of us. When people want to praise us or they want to exalt us, we'd say, wait, wait, wait. You need to know who deserves all the praise and all the glory, and it's not me. We are, we are nothing in his sight. We are, Jesus said, at best unprofitable servants. But what happens a lot of times is people begin to praise and worship the messenger more than the message of the Lord. That is idolatry. That is wrong. And the fact that John could make this classic mistake right here in this part of Revelation ought to give every one of us pause. The last verse in 1 John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Turn away from idolatry. Flee idolatry. The fact is, if that can happen to the Apostle John, it could happen to every one of us. When he says here that he's one of the ones who has the testimony of Jesus, what is he talking about? Well, I would remind you that over in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, when the Apostle Peter was giving an account to the people there in Jerusalem about what had happened at Caesarea, and he gave them a very interesting quote. He said, I'm going to quote to you from Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile centurion in Caesarea. But Cornelius was in turn quoting an angel. And so this is kind of fascinating that you have Peter who is quoting Cornelius, who's quoting an angel, and it tells you in Acts chapter 11, here's what he said. The angel said, he, Peter, he will tell you words by which you and all your house shall be saved. What do we call that? We call that the gospel. We call that the good news of God's grace. He will tell you words by which you and all your house will be saved. Think about that as an angel here. He is one of the ones who is giving a testimony of Jesus. Later on, uh, earlier I should say, in Revelation, we actually find out that one of the angels was at the very end given the ability to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, he's one who has the testimony of Jesus. But what does he mean here when he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? I really puzzled over this one this week, and I tried to work through and look at various commentaries to see, what's he really talking about here? 
And there are three possibilities when he says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You could say the essence of prophecy, the the main part, the most important principle, P-R-N-C-I-P-A-L, the principal part of, of prophecy. One of those possibilities would be that the revelation and proclamation of Jesus is the essence of prophecy. I think we could actually document that one a couple ways. In fact, uh, be a week from this evening as we celebrate our Lord's table, I would like to present a message to you on the sufficiency of Christ. And I think we can really demonstrate that, that, that all the promises of God in the Scripture are in Him, yes and amen. I, and I think that it would be absolutely right to say it. Is that what he means here? Well, there's a second possibility, and that is that the proclamation by Jesus is the primary part of prophecy. That is, Jesus Christ in the way that he brought it all together. And you can see how many times he uses the Old Testament when he talks about blessed are the meek. He's quoting right out of the Old Testament. You know, blessed are they that mourn. He, he's using these scriptures that what Jesus Christ was actually doing was he was demonstrating to all of us Here's how the word of God ought to be preached. Now, this is kind of fascinating when you stop to think about in Matthew chapter 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount beginning with the Beatitudes. But if you went over to Luke chapter 6, you would see that he's also referring to those Beatitudes over there. What does that mean? Is Luke 6 talking about the same event that you have in Matthew chapter 5? And the answer is he's probably not. Here's the more likely possibility and probability that Jesus Christ had specific messages that he used repeatedly, that he had a message and messages that he wanted conveyed over and over again. And with his disciples, with those 12, he went and he preached some of those very same messages repeatedly, sometimes putting in some new things, bringing in new things, answering questions, but that he preached those messages over and over again So when he sent his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, this is when they became apostles, became sent ones, it's very likely that they went out and preached exactly the same messages. One of the indications that we have of that kind of thing in Scripture is this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now catch this, and the things which you have heard of me among many many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That raises a question for every one of us. When you hear Pastor Rod preach, you see these messages, you see these manuscripts, would you ask the Lord if he would have you to convey those things? It's very plain that Jesus preached some of the same messages over and over again in different locales Those disciples, those apostles heard them, then they were used of the Lord, sometimes to preach exactly the same messages. That could be what is meant in this passage, that the Lord himself, as he preached, as Jesus preached, that's the primary part of the prophecy. The third possibility is it's really the combination of the first two, that Jesus Christ, in him are all the promises of God, yes and amen. He is completely sufficient. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. All those things are true of him. In any case, here's what you're seeing. 
that Jesus said in John chapter 5, he was speaking to his critics on this occasion, when he said to them in verse 39, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Dear friend, can you take your Bible and find Jesus Christ in both the Old and New Testament? Can you find him in the servant songs? Can you proclaim him from the Psalms? Can you show him, even in the sacrifices of Leviticus, how that was a foreshadowing of his ultimate giving of himself to be a great blessing to all of us? The fact is, he is central to the scriptures, and he's telling us there how important it is for all of us to see Jesus Christ and proclaim him ultimately. As I was thinking through the end of this message today, I thought through the following applications that I wrote out for you there in your manuscript. First of all, if you are a true Christian, a member of the bride of Christ, are you making yourself ready for the Lord's coming? What was it about this last week that you would say, that was part of my preparation for the Lord's coming. I'm longing for him. I'm I'm watching for him. I'm waiting for him. Secondly, Have you actually heard the gospel call and have you responded by trusting Jesus as your Lord? I know that the vast majority of you in this room, you could explain the gospel. You've heard it explained so many times, but have you answered it as God's call to you? Have you truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And would you say now that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, arrayed in this clean white linen of the saints, would you say today, that is exactly how the Lord sees me. I I am accepted in the beloved. That is, I'm accepted in Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I'm longing for and waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb and getting ready for that wonderful reception. And have you recognized and reveled in the blessing of being called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, one of the most important events of all the centuries? I want to encourage everyone under the sound of my voice, let's get ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad. Shall we bow our heads together? Father, I praise you and thank you today for the magnetic way in which this passage attracts us and draws us to want to love and honor our Lord even more and to praise him and exalt him. And Father, I ask that during this day, even in our Sunday school hour, as we go on to honor you and serve you there, that you would help us that everything we do would be about honoring and praising our Lord and getting ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you for the opportunity to exalt Jesus Christ today. We, say in, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.